Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of Smart Council. This episode is one of a series of lectures that I delivered in a class setting. The class was an introduction to addictions, and the context was a master's in counseling program at a Protestant university. Given this context, the episodes are longer, live, and a bit more organic than normal. You may hear gaps in conversation. These represent where I paused to interact with a student question. Otherwise, uh, this is me having the most fun public speaking that I can imagine. Uh, So thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Hey, good morning. Happy Monday, because the day I'm recording this is a Monday, and thus it is ever after and for always Monday for you who are viewing it as well. Happy Monday. Blessed Feast of Saints Peter and Paul. Uh, We are continuing our lecture, our discussion around theories of addiction, again exploring the question of just what is addiction, why do people do these things to themselves, Uh, and uh, we've briefly explored um, some different models that Starting from starting in order from those where th- those that I like the least to th- those that I like the most, and so now we're getting into the models that, that I like the most. So this will be fun. Um, I talked about how the limits of seeing uh, addiction as surely just a criminal activity or a uh, person's deviant sense of choice. Uh, I've talked about the disease model. They talked about. Um, biopsychosocial model, diathesis stress theory. We've talked a lot about family systems and um, with notes to, you know, the uh, psychological, sociological, developmental components that go into it as well. All that to say and to emphasize that uh, when a person compulsively and out of control, uh, when a person uses a substance or a behavior in a compulsive, out of control manner in spite of consequences, there's a lot of reasons for that and it's very complex and it would be very uh, foolhardy to jump into any particular explanation as the explanation. Uh, although when we get to trauma and attachment, that's kind of where I lean closer to saying this is the explanation. Um, even even so, all of the other factors are always at play. But anyway, these are, these are getting to be the models that, that I like the most because I think they uh, answer the most. So um parenthetically here so we'll talk a little bit about um a spiritual conception of what addiction is and uh do this for a couple reasons a because uh this lecture is uh being created for uh students at a christian university where we do where we are christians doing counseling uh, which I think is a little bit different specifically than just like christian counseling it's absolutely not biblical counseling in the Nethetic sense, uh, there, there's a very particular thing there that we're not doing. Um, but for those of us who um, practice spirituality, particularly within the Christian tradition, uh, we do want to take we do want to make a note about you know spiritually speaking, 
what do we think is going on with addiction? What is a person doing? <clears throat> so, uh, so this model uh, or uh, this framework uh, starts with um, have, needing an understanding of just what, what, what is a person and how is a person made. So, so we, you know, we, we, in the, we in the ancient church, we would say humans are created in the image of God. Um, that, that image never goes away and is never, never undone. And so that, that image is always good and always geared towards God. Um, the likeness, of course, of that image, of course, can be tarnished in numerous ways, uh, to numerous degrees, to where the image is greatly obscured. But, the, but that image is always there. And so there's, there's always this, this um, inherent design to, to how people are. Uh, and we would say that humans are created with an infinite capacity for desire. We can desire things and desire and desire and desire, and our des and our capacity for desire is is infinite. And uh, and the part of the reason for that is that you know again within ancient Christian thought, uh, our our ultimate fulfillment is to be found in forever desiring God, who Himself is infinite and unknowable and immutable, and uh, all of these all of these things. Uh, the idea is that you pair infinite desire with infinite object of that desire, and it's a match, and it's good, and all is well. Uh, the The problem then becomes when we turn our desire away from that whom is infinite and turn it towards the created things. Uh, the idea is that uh, there's no created thing that will, there's no created thing that is in, that is in of itself infinite, and thus no created thing can um, can satisfy an infinite desire. And that's part of where um, where the 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 spiritual spiritual component comes in. Um, we we desire things. Uh, it's, it's not, and it's not always that we desire bad things. We we just desire things that are ultimately not able to to gratify us or to fulfill us. So uh, that leads to uh, disappointment, perpetual disappointment. Disappointment leads to anxiety. Anxiety leads to pain. Pain leads to seeking a soothing for that pain. And then we get hooked on whatever we most seek after to, uh, to be a, a short-term uh, supplement to, to, to that desire. Uh, and then uh, we could also say uh, there, there's a sense where, uh, spiritually speaking, an addiction is a preoccupation with the self, particularly in gratifying desires. Um, and again, not to say that the desires are bad and not to say that the, all of the desires are misplaced. Having a desire for pleasure, it's not inherently bad. It's just, you know, has to be handled very carefully. You know, desires for secure attachment, for security, for safety, for, for confidence, for, for purpose. Uh, those are good desires. Um, but again, in according to ancient Christian thought, we would say all of those desires only find their ultimate source in, in God. And thus, anything short of that is going to leave you disappointed and frustrated, and thus you'll tend to act out out of that distress. Um, can I uh, interject here a little bit? Sure. I'm going to ask these questions knowing that these questions are going to make me like that guy. <laughs> okay. So, um, desiring God is what we're meant for, and um, desiring something else instead of God or more than God or something else like that kind of leads to this downward cycle of brokenness and compulsion that is where you see addiction. And so from this model, then we probably see a lot less addictive, compulsive behavior in church. Is that correct? 
No, that's not correct. <laughs> so. Why? Why not? Are they desiring God? Like, why would there not be less addictive compulsive behavior in church? Second question before you get into that, and this is maybe is not the question to stop, so I'll just say this stuff and you guys can think about it. <laughs> All right, <laughs> sounds good. Um, also, can't religion itself sort of become an addiction compulsion? Yeah. Uh, the, so, so, so great question. So, um, so rehearsing if I understood the first question, right? So if in this framework, we're saying, uh, like addiction uh, comes out of desire for God, wouldn't you see less addiction in, in the church? And I, I mean, short answer is going to say, no, you actually see just as much addiction in the church as elsewhere. Um, and then, uh, well, how did you ask your second question? Like, oh, can't, can, can isn't it true that religion itself can also become kind of a, an, an addictive thing? Um, and I would say short answer, yes. So, uh, so some thoughts there. So, uh, why, why do we, why do we see just as much addiction in, in the church? And, uh, and again, here's where we'd factor in all of the other reasons, because it's, it's not just a, it's not just like a, a monolithic, monolithic cause. I mean, you can still have somebody who's, who's in the church, who's, who's desiring God truly, but, still has to work through a lot of trauma, still has a lot of maybe like this genetic payload they're working through or still just like never learned like really healthy coping skills or or maybe there's like a physical dependence there also. Um, or, uh, and, and this could be a thing too, maybe possibly uh, the thing that they think is God that they're desiring might actually not quite be God as, as God actually is. It might be maybe this like super emotional feeling that I get around God and then that's that's a whole different thing. Or maybe it's uh, like, like, I do desire God, but, but really I want like, you know, power and influence uh, or something. Um, or maybe I'm really just after community. You know, all of those things are a little bit different. And so they're gonna, they're gonna work backwards that way. And, and in terms of this other question, uh, could, is it true that religion, there's, there's an addictive component to, to religion? Um, in, I think at least two, two, two lectures from now, I'm going to talk more about the, the addictive cycle. And there I'm going to talk about acting out versus acting in. And, you know, sh you know short, short teaser. So we say acting out would be the very explosive, volatile, I'm using drugs, I'm having risky sexual encounters, I'm gambling, I'm doing all of these really outwardly damaging things, I'm acting out. Uh, and we'll sometimes say a person can switch to acting in, which is the more uh, compulsive control and uh, t maintaining very tight control of my life, maybe developing a very strong aversion to the former, the former things, the acting out behaviors. And, and in that mode, I can become very, a very high performance person and all and very performative and all about doing a lot of things that are celebrated. So here's where I might look for like an exercise addiction or like a nutrition obsession, or I might become the workaholic or, in, or maybe possibly I might become like that person who's like at every church activity, you know, like doing nothing but church, nothing but religion, nothing but Bible reading, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and again, not that, again, within this tradition, not that those are bad things to do. However, if what I'm doing is I'm doing those things at the expense of connecting with the rest of my life or at the expense of like actually doing inner work, like if I'm not actually like repenting or growing or actually being present with myself, if I'm really just using this whole religious structure, this empty religious ritual 
as a means for distracting myself from myself, then I could say I'm probably not actually growing spiritually and probably in an acting in cycle. And that's addiction just as much as anything else. Uh, and, you know, you're subject to a lot of risks of, you know, burnout and uh, getting frustration, getting disillusioned in, the, in that mode. So we really do have to be very careful um, of that. Yes. Not, not to, I mean, probably is saying the same thing, but just to be sure I'm wrapping my head around this correctly. So would this be like a scenario if I'm, uh, if, if I'm overzealously, you know, part of a, a, a religious organization or something, but my actual purposes are, I just want to be there because I get a big dopamine kick out of it. And then when that kind of falls apart and isn't the thing, I get disappointed and, and leave that group. If I if I if I follow you, I think I think you're you're onto something. You're you're saying you're noting how you can go to a like a religious experience, uh, primarily looking for for the emotional kick you get out of it. And you might do this consciously or unconsciously, um, but but if that is indeed what what you're going for, it is very possible that lacking that or failing in that or not being able to consistently get to that emotional high, that spiritual high, yeah, you might become really disillusioned. Uh, with that group for sure, you might, you know, church hop to look for where you got your most emotional kick. Uh, you might also, again, it, depending on how things have come about, like if for some reason, like you, you've conflated um, knowing and experiencing God for knowing and experiencing dopamine, um, then yeah, feeling the dopamine, you might come to question your faith and say like, why isn't this coming through? Why don't I feel good? Um, you know, the reality is that, you know, like the, the spiritual life, it, it's, it's very, it's very difficult. It's very painful and there, there's a lot of labor and, um, you know, we'd say like an ideal state would be dispassion where you're very, you're, um, again, like, not like, not that like emotion is bad, but like that you're not driven by that. You're not primarily seeking that. And that's, that's a tricky state to get to, or it takes a lot more work to get to. So uh so so again so considering our uh our more spiritual framework for what addiction is um it's um and i think i i i don't really like the, the title that i gave this it's not so much like about like idolatry it's, it's a lot more about mastering the passions um you know one, one uh you know one one orthodox writer's talk he, i i'll read this quote he's talked about in talking about taming the passions he says uh you know this does not mean you need to deprive yourself of good food or entertainment. Everything God created is good. It means you should enjoy what is necessary for your welfare, but also forego all the indulgences based on your desires for sensual pleasure. You cannot simply ignore the passions. You need to recognize them and then train them to come under the control of your soul and mind. This is how you can live in ways that do not undermine your health, security, or freedom from sinful tendencies such as anger. With untrained passions, it is like having a team of wild horses pulling, pulling your wagon. You think you are the driver, but the horses decide to go where they want. These wild horses are the untamed passions. The challenge is to harness and train your passions so they will follow your commands, just like a trained team of horses is obedient to the commands of the driver. Uh, so I, I really like the, the, this balance of, again, not saying any part of your body or any part of yourself is inherently wrong or unwelcome and especially when talking about the body and especially when talking about desires uh, some errors and some theological errors that have developed over the centuries have been those that would that would take a more dualistic approach saying you know the soul is good and the body is bad um, that sort of tension just creates a whole lot of problems 
um, ideally you say, you know, the soul is good and the body is good. But what we do is we say, and they ought to be ordered in a very particular way so as to function the most cohesively. And again, in, in ancient Christian thought, we'd, we, we'd rank that with, you know, like, um, like soul, soul, spirit, body, I think. I guess soul and spirit mixed up. But the idea is like your, your very spiritual part takes the most priority, like your mental, emotional capacities uh, come next. And then, then your, your, your physical self, you know, comes after that. And they say when, when ordered in that way, tended to cherished and tamed in that way, then the person can uh, function in a much more cohesive way. Uh, so in that sense, okay, so, so here we say addiction is untamed passions. Um, and, and again, recognizing there's a tendency toward, toward acting out and acting in, um, that we, there's the kind of the, the classic, you know, seven deadly sins source of passions, but then there's, um, more and more spiritual passions or they'll, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll note a difference between, uh, like worldly pride and monastic pride. The city of saying like, um, I'm just like arrogant and prideful and I think everything's because of me and. I'm so great and better than everybody else. Like that, 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 that's kind of visibly like not good and easy to recognize. Uh, on the other end, we might have um, like this monastic pride, like maybe the acting in sort of pride where it's somebody who's saying like, I, you know, I'm keeping all the vigils and all the fasts and I'm praying and I'm doing all of this really spiritual work and I'm really proud of it. <laughs> uh, and in that sense, still uh, giving into to the, um, the passion of pride. Uh, and we might say that's, that's, much better than a worldly pride, but but still a pride, and so still still part of the passions, something that needs to be to be worked out. The person is uh, good, in, inherently good, inherently in the image of God, but still subject to the passions, most especially pride. Um, here's where we can factor in again, um, looking at uh, so using using the Christian uh, idea of sin. You know, looking at sin primarily as a disease. You know, it's not that the person is so bad or so broken or so evil for having done it. It's mu as much as the person is sick and needing needing a healing of a sort. Um, pros of this approach: it addresses the relationship with God or with a higher power or with the ultimate. Um, there's um, it's it's good to it's good to be able to factor in spirituality into therapy. Uh, and again, you know, people, you know, everyone in the class might come at this a little bit differently. Certainly everyone on the podcast will, will be coming at this from a different spot. Uh, and certainly all of our clients will come at this from a different spot also. But it's a good tool in the counselor's tool bag to be able to, you know, bring up and freely engage in conversations around spirituality where they are relevant and where they come up, you know, particularly where a client might want them or particularly if a client doesn't want to go there and maybe has a lot of trauma around here. It's very important to be able to, to address that all very comfortably. Um, uh, you know, one of, one of the difficulties of talking spirituality is that it is intangible and it's technically unscientific and, uh, and it's difficult to diagnose and work with in a clinical setting. Um, and, Again, referencing religious trauma, that there has been a lot of religious trauma, and that easily gets associated with all of this. Um, there's also a vulnerability, I'd say, to over-spiritualization, uh, which could be an excuse to uh, blame demons and not actually do any trauma work. Um, I mean, we, you know, if, if we're going to factor in the spiritual realities, we could say, sure, there's demons. But, like, you know, it... <laughs> Not very much, not very often, and we still have to do our emotional work and our trauma work, and the like. The body is a really big factor too, so we'd have to be very careful not to over spiritualize things that are not 
only only that. Um, it's it's usually a mix of everything. Uh, and again, if you're going to want to be trying to do like a much more spiritually focused practice, you need a spiritual mentor on top of a clinical mentor, uh, and you just have to find that. So talking about um, like clinical implications, spiritual integration of uh, spirituality into like addictions work, um, one, one offering for um, one offering from, again, especially ancient Christian thought for, for recovery has to do with, again, you, you know, we'll see, see the passions, see the, see the mismanagement and passions that the sin that comes out of that as, um, as, a, as part of, as, as a sickness, as a disease that, need, that needs to be healed, healed through a, a long process, you know, the long process of recovery, the long process of salvation, the long process of holiness. Uh, and we'll offer up that it's definitely not just a cognitive, you know, it's not a not a cognitive thing. It's not intellectual assent to a set of precepts. It's more you start to live in a different way. You go through a set of practices that are, are handed to you from from your tradition that that are recognized as these are good. These are practices that are good for you, that are good for your soul, that are good for your spiritual growth. You know, you know, do these, do these with with spiritual guidance, do these in spiritual community, you grow spiritually. And it's very much that way in a recovery process also. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to sustain a really, really deep, thorough recovery process all on your own. You need a mentor, you need a group, you need community, you need regular practices and consistent self-care, and you need, you need rituals to go through. Um, and again, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to in the clinic, you know, you might get somebody who they never really got super caught up in their addiction, or maybe their, their acting out behaviors didn't cause like a whole lot of damage. They might not, you know, they might not actually be meeting criteria for addiction as, as we're going to talk about it. They might just have gotten in trouble or uh, gotten a little carried away a little bit. And, you know, maybe, maybe they're not at this, uh, at the deep place that some people get to where they say, yeah, I cannot manage my life anymore. Um, not everybody actually gets there. Um, and so the, the importance of that mentoring, that community and that ongoing process that, that changes a little bit, you know, if somebody, if somebody hasn't really, you know, broken their life that deeply, they may not need that much help. So that's, but we'll talk about that more when we get to diagnoses, because there's a lot of things to consider there. All right, moving on, let's talk trauma. So uh, here's where we're getting into what, what I think are the um, are, are the key components of, of what addiction is. Uh, we'll talk about uh, trauma here, and then um, that that'll be it for for this lecture. And then I'm gonna, I'll do like a, a short bit just on the uh, attachment disorder, uh, the the intimacy disorder bit. When a person is act is acting out, and again, this could be with drugs or alcohol, sex, porn, gambling, food. Anger, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of different things, uh, but whatever their cycle is, um, it's not just the behavior. There's something driving the behavior. Uh, clinical jargon would be the the underlying factors, uh, and so those are very important to, to consider, uh, particularly the traumas. And uh, and again, I think when we maybe maybe next lecture we'll bring in the uh, the adverse childhood experiences uh, exam, the the ACE score. You can also Google it; it's everywhere. But there's uh, a series of uh, really devastating things that can happen to a child in in young childhood that have an indelible and lasting impact on, on the person, particularly in how they how they respond to it. 
they go through painful things, they have to cope with those painful things, and addictions tend to, and compulsions, they tend to offer really ready solutions for getting through that pain. Uh, not at all in a healthy way, but they get through them. Uh, so why this one is uh, dubbed trauma reaction slash dissociation is recognizing how uh, oftentimes when you talk to folks in recovery, folks who folks who have been a little bit deeper into it, uh, they'll often talk about this uh, most peculiar experience of they you know they they act out, they start to get clean, they start to get in recovery. They start to think like a sober person and think, you know, they, they start to really value it. They say, I like my sober life. I like my family. I like my job. I like who I am as a sober, sober person. And oftentimes they'll talk about um, when they relapse as if it were a, another person in them or being in a whole different mode of being. You know, they, they frequently talk about the, the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde effect of like, there's me, there's my addict, uh, and we do different things, and I, I wish I could get rid of that person. And there's, there's almost this, this dissociative aspect of, or this alter ego aspect where we say there, there's the person I am when I'm sober, when I'm clean, when I'm healthy, when I'm at my best, and then there's this whole other aspect of myself when I'm acting out. Um, that's not myself that will very easily violate everything that, that I hold true uh, for, for the sake of this thing. And so that dissociative, that dissociative compartmentalization aspect, it's, it's pretty common. And, uh, you know, when you think about like how, how a trauma works, how, how the, the tra symptoms of traumatic stress work, um, you know, some of, some of the major components to that are, um, are, are aversion and avoidance and, and dissociation. You, you, you compulsively avoid anything res that's remotely re resembling the, the, the prototype trauma. Uh, and, you know, when, when something like that comes up, uh, if you can't physically escape it, you dissociate. And, you know, trauma exists on a, on a spectrum of dissociation where, you know, you can have, you know, just somebody who's like kind of like distracted or zoning or daydreaming. Uh, you know, all the way up to someone who has like dissociative identity disorder uh, in, you know, pop culture extreme on the other end, you have, you know, and, you know, your, your, your Tyler Durden fight club, you know, mischief person, you know, I have this whole other character wreaking all of this havoc that in, in my body and I, I've lost time there. Uh, that, that's uh, a little like, exaggerated and very much on the extreme, but, but it's that, that idea of like, because I've been through a lot of trauma, uh, I, I'm now dissociating. And, and how that is pertinent for talking about um, addictions and compulsions is it's saying that uh, this is the reason why people addict in the way that they do. It's because there, there's a trauma reaction going. Something really bad and painful happened, and now that's um, left the person uh, actively seeking, consciously or unconsciously, some way to avoid the continued and lingering effects of what that thing is. So here we'd say... Um, a mild trauma might lead to a mild addiction with a higher capacity to be present in the world. Uh, an extreme trauma might lead to an extreme addiction with a lower capacity to be present in the world. Depends on what, we, what we've been through. And, and again, we'll talk about this a little bit more, you know, talking about attachment disorders. So um, it could be that, um, like the most, the mo you know, it could be that, like the most pain I went through was like, oh, I was kind of a lonely kid growing up, you know never got hit, never got abused and, and all that. Um, but I was just like, you know, kind of lonely. That's, that's still painful, but you know, 
you might and you might act out some uh, in in response to that pain but but you also carry with you a lot of other you know supports and skills and insight and other resilience so you might not act out very much or if like you got caught like you you re- recover from that kind of easily you know it's different than somebody who you know maybe they were in fear of their life a lot of the time maybe they lived around a parent or another family member who was acting out. Maybe they were abused in all of the ways, or even just one of the ways. Um, they're all terrible. Um, or you, you know, factor in someone who's you know living with, you know, systemic racism or you know uh, homophobia or something like that. Um, these these ongoing terrifying you know situations those create a much more extreme version of trauma. And so uh, your drive to escape that. Is going to be uh, a whole lot, a whole lot more pronounced. Early caregiving relationships are supposed to be our initial template for safety, security, trust, and optimism. Uh, failing that results in attachment disorders, which we're going to talk about next time, uh, which result in the primary and ultimate human crisis, which is relationship rupture, either acute or chronic, subtle or toxic. Our primary needs are for relationship, and if those needs are not met, or if those needs are exploited or abused in some way that creates a really particular kind of trauma and and a really inescapable sort of pain. And so so we'll do what we can to, to escape that, even if it's really bad for us. Uh, it's important to remember also what happens with what happens with trauma. So when we'll talk a little bit more about trauma in the brain as we go, I think. But so we have our so we have so we have our so we have our you know prefrontal cortex or our orbital frontal cortex the the neocortex the, the front of the brain that handles all of your responsible rational you know connective thought uh, and then you have your your limbic system your your midbrain or your animal brain that handles again bodily responses emotions and your stress response so it's the 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 flight fight freeze response and uh, you know it kind of goes in that order you know faced with a stressor of some sort. Um, in a, in that that stressor could be like there there's actually a bear chasing me and I need to run or uh, I'm getting you know angry looks from somebody I care about or I think I might lose my job or there's this blasted virus out there or or something I, I perceive something stressful and and my body mobilizes all of its internal resources to to deal with that and that's going to be like the the adrenaline the the, the cortisol. Uh, the things that mobilize the energy, rev me up, tighten me up, get me ready to run or fight. Um, my first response is going to be uh, a flight response if I can do it, uh, which is not just can I get out of the situation, but can I connect? Can I find someone else? Someone can I draw strength, rescue from another person, from a secure relationship? Um, and, and if that happens, that 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 that's the best thing. Um, so secondarily to that, if I can't escape, then I'm going to shift into fight mode. Um, fight mode is going to probably look more destructive outside of me if, if, I, if I act on that because that's when I might yell or I might hit or I might do something, uh, which is worse for the environment around me because of the damage I'm inflicting uh, internally, though, limbically. It's actually not too bad because what that, what that means is while I'm in fight response, I'm still mobile. I'm still functioning. I'm still powerful in a sense. I'm still... I'm still, I'm still um, I still have a sense of myself as capable and, and free and able to move. Um, once the, the fight response fails and I realized, A, I cannot, I cannot leave, A, A.5, I cannot connect with anyone else over this, B, I cannot fight this or solve this by myself, 
then they shift into the freeze response, and that's the helplessness, the immobility response, where I say, okay, the only option left to me is to collapse and to play dead and to hope I survive it in some way. Um, and that could be like a very physical collapse. It could be that mental dissociation, like I'm just going to leave, my mind's going to shut down. Um, and part of what's really uh, devastating here is that all of that energy, all of that stress energy, those uh, the adrenaline, the cortisol, like the tensing up, all of the mobilization that your body did to get ready for it is still there, still primed. You're still ready to go, but you don't do anything. And so that energy just gets stored. And if that energy never gets discharged, it stays stored. And if more stuff happens, more energy gets stored and stays stored until you're just like frozen in all of this way. Uh, and so what tends to happen is that your mind at some point figures out, okay, whatever happened, happened and is done with it and I should be over it. And it was a long time ago. And gosh, why am I still bothered by that thing that happened a long time ago, so, says the brain. Meanwhile, the body's like, hey, we're still all like tensed up and ready for battle here. Are we going to go? Are we going to do anything? Are we safe? We still think we're in danger. We still think we're in danger. We still think we're in danger. In that tension, you know, the, 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 the urge is going to be to try to try to like resolve the trauma. But what ends up happening is you end up just reenacting the trauma. And this will be sometimes through like physically harming yourself. It happens a lot in relationships. Like you go through one like traumatic relationship early on, you tend to gravitate toward relationships that reenact those same painful patterns. Um, not because you're just like sick and crazy and broken, but because your, your organism is trying to resolve what happened before, trying to complete it, trying to allow itself to move on. But there's, there's like unanswered questions or undischarged energy that needs to be adult, dealt with. Where do, where do drugs factor in? So, uh, you know, drug, you know, drugs and alcohol, you know, sex and porn, gambling, food, they, they all offer escapes from the, from the sensations. They all offer a way of feeling not good, but less, less of the stress, less of, less of your own self. The, the idea behind um, the, this uh, trauma reaction dissociative aspect is that the, the acting out behaviors get you out of yourself because yourself has become an intolerable place, an unsustainable, in, uninhabitable place. Uh, you know, because you're carrying that trauma in your body and you're carrying the trauma in your mind and you, and you just can't sustain existence there. And so you look for any way you can to, to get out of it. Here we go, saying what we've said before. The problem is the adverse childhood experiences, particularly all the forms of abuse. Um, these, are preventable, these are preventable events, if we organize our society around that, um, that have been allowed to happen. Uh, children do not have adequate internal nor any external resources to cope and make sense of what just happened. So the body stores the stress energy uh, and experiences that is an intense pain in the Thus, like we said, the person acts out not to feel good, but to feel less. Uh, the solution then is to complete the, to complete the trauma. Uh, here's where we can learn something from uh, our friends who do uh, like somatic experiencing or even EMDR or the, like the dance movement therapists, people who, who engage with the body in a much more real way, in a much more like actually mobile way. Sometimes the body, like your physical body itself needs to actually move. In, in a meaningful way to to discharge the energy and to complete the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, P Peter Levine's book, uh, Waking the Tiger, he, he tells a, a story of someone he worked with who um, 
it's been a bit, so I'm going to forget some of the details. But but uh, the central story was something about uh, you know young boy you know gets chased by a dog, bitten by a dog. It's, it's traumatic. It's, it's painful. It's frightening. Um, and that that stress gets stored in his body, um, you know, uh, into adulthood. Um, the resolving of that had something to do with, you know, going back to 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 inhabit that moment. Again, not for the sake of just like definitely not to, to re-traumatize the person with the memory and not even to like relive it or completely like regurgitate it to, to, to an audience as much as to say, um, can I renegotiate that moment? Can I, in a sense, like create like an alternate ending of it uh, and then act that out of my body? And in the case you know, that, that, that um, Peter Levine talks about, um, it meant um, this particular person um, s simulating like a running motion in like, like in group and, and actually moving his legs in a really fierce sort of way um and, and in that kind of moving himself through like a um, a different version of it where you know the, the trauma gets completed the the running that was supposed to have happened back then with the actual dog uh now gets to happen here um and again the point of that is not to say the dog did not actually bite or the event did not actually happen as much as to say, and now the body has completed that. So we can say now that event is actually over years later. And now, now the, now the whole person, including the body is ready to move on from it. Uh, and for that to happen, we could say, you know, person moves on from their trauma. We could say then they're moving on from their, the primary underlying reason that they were acting out in addiction to, to begin with. So, so then you say, okay, now you learn healthy coping skills. Now you learn healthy relationships. Now you, you get sober. Now you do all of your self-care stuff. Now you, uh, you know, you do all that. Um, and you get some clean time and everything. Uh, now the, 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 the house of recovery sobriety you build has the foundation of actual healing going on. So it could actually be sustained. So that's it. That's uh, <laughs> problem solved. That's what that's what we're, we're working with. A lot of trauma. Uh, addiction is uh, in this uh, approach a desperate and costly survival strategy. Uh, the person just survives the pain through dissociation and internal fracturing. Um, one thing to always remember and you know talk about with with the with clients who, who are addicted is uh, recognizing you know they've been through a whole lot of stuff and there should be some affirmation for that. They have survived, they've gotten through stuff. They were clever enough, hardy enough, resourceful enough to get through every bad thing that has happened to them. Um, not in healthy ways, and that, that's, that's kind of obvious, um, but they, they found the tools that they needed to get through it. And so now, again, they're, they're not bad people, they're just people, they're, they're grown up people with very primitive, very primal survival tools who need safe and supportive relationships and better tools and also like a space to to go through some some really serious healing who is the person in this one the person is someone who is victimized usually isolated who's seeking comfort safety and security and ultimately possesses a notable resiliency if it can be unearthed uh, pros of this model uh, i really like this approach because i think it addresses the deepest cause of the behaviors and if you're not going to if you don't address the deepest cause of the behaviors, then the cycle will still continue. Um, addiction very much moves in a cycle, and it's the, it's the trauma and it's the pain that, that drive it. So, um, so you need to, you really need to address the trauma to, to stop that cycle, and that uh, that means digging into all of this. There, there there's kind of a question that, that can come up 
this will come up again when we talk about addiction interaction and how there's usually a cluster of addictions going on. But you know, do you quit one thing at a time? Do you quit everything at once? I, and, and either approach could be really tempting. It could be really tempting to say, just quit everything all at once. That's really hard, really disruptive. And uh, short of being locked away for like 90 days, like it's hard, really hard to do that. Um, it's a lot more accessible sometimes to, to, to quit one or two things at a time and do a kind of a incremental progressive habit building that just takes longer. And there's a risk that the cycle, because the cycle is still going as long as the habits are going. And there's a risk that that will just keep going and going. You got to take it individual cases because every individual is different. This approach, I think, is really necessary also um, because it factors in the non-substance addictions. Uh, talking about like, like, well, when when people write about the disease model or especially the moral moral model, um, they um, uh, or like the developmental sociocultural model, the the talk they they put a lot of emphasis on the drugs and alcohol. Um, which habitually, like the drugs and alcohol, they get all of the attention anyway, a lot of it. Um, more recently, you know, gambling disorder has showed up in the DSM. That's a really good move. Uh, more recently, uh, you, know, you know, sexual addictions are being recognized. Um, as a couple of years ago, the World Health Organization, you know, established criteria for compulsive sexual behaviors as a, as a diagnosis. You know, a new diagnosis coming soon to an insurance company near you, hopefully. Um, but... Uh, our, our culture likes to put the attention on the drugs because, again, the drugs offer a nice, convenient scapegoat to say, it's the chemicals, the chemicals made me do it, and it's those chemical traffickers over there who are the bad guys, and those chemical users who are the bad guys. It's much more complicated to think, oh, okay, so what about sex and food? Those are good things, things we need to do, uh, and there's also people who are addicted to those. Um, are those people also bad? Are they broken? Or should we just avoid sex and food altogether? Uh, I hope not. <laughs> so, um, uh, so a model like like the biopsychosocial model, like the, the the trauma reaction model, and like we'll, we'll talk about like addiction interaction, they they factor in the behaviors a lot more easily, and that's a really important thing to do too. Because again, if a person's addicted to one thing, they're probably addicted to a cluster of things. And some of them are probably non-chemical and non-external. There's probably a lot of like internal things that a person uses compulsively also. Um, the, okay, so talking about a trauma reaction, uh, one potential con uh, limitation, it could be that this sense that trauma is um, explosive, volatile, and conventionally painful, which it is, it definitely is. Uh, there, there's some other subtle traumas, little t traumas that can happen, like like emotional neglect. Um, uh, you know, it it's not gonna, you know, no, nobody's gonna go on a march, you know, protest, you know, or protest saying, you know, you know, emotionally neglected people's lives matter. You know, no, nobody's ever gonna do that. Um, but somebody who experiences like emotional neglect, even in like this safe, you know, loving, you know, stable, stable household. I mean, they're, they're still going to come out with like attachment problems and that, and sometimes that can be the thing that, that drives a compulsive behavior pattern. So, so, and there is a way focusing on trauma like this may address, uh, yes, this will show up more and more, more severe cases of addiction. Uh, my other cases of addiction may not, it may not be quite as, as relevant. Um, 
what this does what this does mean though for, for, for your clinic or for your program is it really demands having a really robust protocol for addressing trauma and really being able to, to do that. So having clinicians who are trained in trauma, who know how to talk about it, um, it probably means like either uh, studying up on EMDR or in somatic approaches, um, mindfulness is going to be really, really important. Um, because again, if, if the, if the acting out behaviors are meant to dissociate a person from themselves and get them out of themselves, uh, a huge goal of recovery is to get them back into themselves. And that's going to be through a process of mindfulness and emotional tolerance and emotional resilience and distress tolerance and learning how to feel your body, feel your feelings, not be overwhelmed by it. Uh, so, so DBT work, mindfulness work, somatic work, those are going to be really important. Uh, and again, EMDR, neurofeedback, those work with like the brain itself. Uh, that's really great. Really great. Um, attachment work happens in the groups. Uh, and I'm going to talk about attachment next time. And uh, the other thing to remember is that all of this takes time. So there's this correlation between length and treatment and and success rates. And they're looking at like inpatient facilities in particular there. Um, this sort of work goes longer than what an, um, a treatment facility can, can really cover. Um, I mean, I mean, if you get to, you know, if it's one of those programs where people get to stay, you know, six months, a year, two years, um, that, that's great. That, that's great if a person can access that and most people can't. So what you have to plan for is that, you know, you do your, you do your inpatient work, you do your intensive outpatient work and uh, you do your initial action stage work. Um, but then plan on like this person needs to stay connected to supports for, for a while, because again, they're, 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 they're healing deep trauma, which has a lot to do with relationships and, and needing to learn how to do relationships really well. And that just takes a lot of time in healthy relationship for, for that to really happen. So that is what we'll say about, um, addiction as trauma reaction, um, uh, to my, uh, wonderful, fabulous studio audience. Um, any quick questions, quick comments? So okay. many questions and so little time. Um, my one question would be like, how do you heal trauma permanently and perfectly? Yeah, um, sco the scope of your question, uh, permanently and perfectly, that I don't know. <laughs> um, so on, um, in, in all seriousness, no. So in all seriousness, though, it's almost lunchtime and I can't talk. <laughs> um, Here's where here's where uh, EMDR practitioners have found um, have found a lot of success with this. So, so I personally have not trained with EMDR, so I can't speak to it in a whole lot of depth. But some some friends and colleagues who have done so, they they have seen a lot of a lot of success and uh, neurofeedback as well too. Things these these a um, little bit more technology oriented approaches that can work directly with like how the brain is working and how the brain is processing thought and memory. There's a lot of there's a lot of potential there. I think, uh, especially if it's things like renegotiating how you experience the memory of a trauma, and allowing there to be like that that gap. Um, uh, other other approaches like um, accelerated resolutions therapy. Uh, I know we did a podcast episode about that a while back, but uh, that's an approach. That's a modality that that has a lot of promise too. Uh, and somatic work too, where again, you're, you're going for what is the body experiencing? What is the, the, the felt sense connected to the original, original painful thing and, and learning how, how to respond well to that. 
Um, modalities like that are going to be really powerful. I'm wondering too if um, narrative therapy could be useful, especially in um, co-authoring a new narrative around the trauma and that sort of thing, or at least techniques from that. I, w- I would say, yeah, nar- narrative therapy has a lot of offerings as well. Where where something like narrative might might fall short is if it's sheerly sheerly an intellectual and in an in intellectual activity. Um, and here's where I think uh, I'm I'm going to go very counter counterculture here. Uh, in a lot of in a lot of treatment programs, like their their model of choice is you know CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and they're going to say this is the way to treat addictions and everything. And I'm going to say CBT is probably one of the least effective ways of addressing uh, addiction. In that uh, CBT is a very logical theory. They say, hey, your flawed behaviors are coming out of you know uh, flawed beliefs and interpretations about these emotions that you have. And what you need to do is you need to take a right uh, have right and rational um, beliefs about these events that have happened, and it's this very intellectual, rational approach, uh, which, I mean, it it's good, and everything they say is true, but it's it's a very logic-based system, and addiction is not logical. Like the addictive compulsive prop, prop uh, the addictive compulsive cycles, they're they're sublogical, they're emotional, they're irrational, and so you can't logic your way out of addiction or argue your way, debate your way out of addiction. Uh, That's why also like you can't be like punished out of addiction either because that's also supposed to be kind of a logical thing. Um, So so these other approaches that work more with the emotions and with the body, uh, those are gonna be a lot more successful because that's more what is actually going on with addiction, so. In the absence of other thoughts, comments, questions here, so we'll, we'll wrap that one up here. Uh, we will come back because uh, I want to give a little bit of a little bit of particular attention to uh, addiction as an attachment disorder uh, or as an intimate as an intimacy disorder, and well, that 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 one will be a short one, but we'll we'll do that. And thanks again for joining us for this lecture of addictions class, and we'll see you again soon. love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music